0: quite a story, right? And it was probably a little hard to track just listening to it. There's lots of ins and outs. There's murders. There's cheating. There is plotting and scheming, and it's really messy, and it's right there in the middle of the Bible. And it's something that we in the church or those, maybe you all don't consider yourselves in the church. Maybe you're people who've left the church because of that sort of stuff being there in the Bible, and it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't feel right. Why is this holy book filled? with murder and adultery and violence? And I think that's a really good question. And in my sermon today, I'm going to do my best to address that. And I think it warrants um, somewhat of a content warning is that I uh, will, in this sermon, directly mention and discuss sexual assault and rape, because it's hard, It's not so clear in that translation of this story. But as I work through the story, I think it becomes clear. That's what's happening. David has raped Bathsheba, and that's something that if we're going to be a part of this tradition, if we're going to grapple with, um, we'll have to grapple with it openly. So I just wanted to say that before I start. And so I was at a gay bar in Oakland last year when suddenly this old saying, the emperor has no clothes, suddenly made new and really terrible sense to me. As each new reports of the next stakes election results rolled in, the speed which I downed my whiskey and Cokes was multiplying. By the time Michigan went to Trump, I was literally on the floor. Not because I was drunk. I actually just go on the floor a lot. <laughs> but, but because, I re- and the reason I do this, I go on the floor, I've reflected on it, is because when I get upset, I just really need to be like low to the ground. Like, I just need to be grounded like to feel okay on a spiritual level. And, oh, there's my phone, not silenced. And it's my mom asking how my sermon's going. (laughs) I'm talking about being drunk, mom. Um, But I just need to be like on the floor. I just need to be safe. And in that moment, my whole world was spinning. I didn't feel safe at all. And it wasn't just that my chosen presidential candidate was losing, no, I was feeling violated because somehow my most fundamental understanding of how this world works was being shattered before my very eyes. Good always defeats evil, I thought, and that meant men who brag about sexual assault and wield words like bludgeons just, they don't win. They, they can't, they won't. And looking back now, I see how naive I was, but time and distance from that night have given me enough space to reflect on why that election and our times in general right now feel so intense, maybe that same sort of intensity for so many of us. We're living through a time where the ways that we as a society approach political issues and social issues is especially charged with a certain kind of moral energy. Whether it's cable news reporting on this moment's political scandal or Facebook statuses calling out the perpetrators of that day's major uh, human rights abomination. There's just so much that we know is happening and it's bad and it's evil and it demands our outrage. And so when this election happened, I was working, and to make matters worse for me in that moment, personally, when this was happening, I was working directly with immigrants and with refugees and with people of color, formerly incarcerated people, and I myself was, of course, a woman. And honestly, what I was then was afraid. But what I didn't realize then, or if I'm being more honest, didn't take seriously then, was that fear that I felt about Trump. There was a whole population in this country, and though I have tried to understand it and still try to understand it, we have to at least take it seriously, felt that same fear and that same disgust for my candidate for Hillary. And right or wrong, warranted or not, that's how people feel, felt, we all felt afraid. Trump evil to me, Hillary evil to them, the reality was that we were living in such different worlds and really that reality that we could be living in such different worlds was the scariest part of it all. We were all, it felt like this was this epic battle between good and evil and nobody really knew who, what's that dude's name, Darth Vader was. And, and so, <laughs> And so what I didn't realize that night at that bar, though, even beyond that, was the slow and painful recognition that this feeling of the battle between good and evil was also going on really deeply and really intimately for me inside of myself. For you see, I have this tendency to sort people into one of two bins, the good bin or the bad bin. Because for me, having those bins in mind where I can put people good or bad, and keep them separate, made me feel safe. But it also put everyone, including myself, constantly at risk of being thrown away. I hadn't realized it so clearly before, but I was actually obsessed with making sure that I was a good person, because I didn't want to be thrown away into that trash bin. So every second of every day for me was and still is this gauntlet of trying to be a good daughter or a good student or a good friend, a good employee. I just have to be good. I don't want to be thrown away. For me, it felt like being bad meant you're done for. That's it. You got to go away. And so deep in my body, I felt this fear more often than not, but I didn't call it fear. I called it perfectionism, or I called it being a team player, or I called it wanting to put other people's needs first, or just like, you know, work my way into the, um, to, be worthy of people's acceptance. And so this really led me to be anxious all the time, even about the most like, daily tasks, like loading a dishwasher felt terrifying to me, or getting dressed, terrifying, or more serious things like speaking my mind, that was impossible. Making art, really putting myself out there and being vulnerable, no way. Talking honestly about my fears Actually, I got pretty good at that one, but I think in some ways I even did that as a safety mechanism. And so the thing is, when you're living with this belief that lovability is tied to being good, and you have this fear that you might not be good, then every moment could be that moment where you're proven right and you're found out. And so frankly, I realized that this is an anxiety problem, and I've been working on it in therapy. But I think that this basic fear uh, I've been trying to heal from is one that so many of us suffer from. It's at the root of white at the root of white fragility. It's that fear that if a person is called racist or if they've done something, even on, not on purpose, racist, they'll be found out and they'll be thrown away. It's at the fear. It's at one of the major obstacles that we face, even with all of this good work being done around the Me Too movement, around. Um, combating and actually moving p- past sexual violence. Because we all hear the statistic that one in four college-aged women will be a victim of sexual violence during their lifetime. But what we don't so often hear is that this means that statistics show that one in ten aged men, men we know, men in college, men maybe that we're friends with or that we love or at least that we admire, have committed sexual violence. It's not so clear. It's not they're a bad person and they're over there and I'm safe from them. We all are doing these bad things. We're all implicated in the system and we can't keep it so clearly apart. And fighting to be good, trying to appear that way, just isn't going to keep us safe. And so this kind of thinking about good and bad people and this belief that we have to be good to be loved, as common as it may be, is not helping us. It's actually, and it's not even true. And so last season at one of our welcome tables, we reflected on Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, which opens with this explosive line. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. It's beautiful and liberating, and I think it's just what we need to be telling ourselves and telling one another in our times right now. These words, I think, are the first aid, anecdote that we need to the poison of our times, but they're also disconcerting. Because if we don't have to be good, then can we be bad? Or are we supposed to be bad? Obviously, that's not what Mary Oliver meant. But if we don't have to be good, then what are we supposed to be? And so looking at today's scripture story again today, it won't answer that question. It's not going to tell us how we're supposed to be. And I don't think that's what the Bible's about most of the time. I don't think it's this guidebook for how we're supposed to live. I think it's a collection of stories, true, messy stories of what it is to be a person and people figuring it out, and it's something that's there, like literature or like our own lives, like watching and talking and living together that we can talk about honestly and vulnerably and reflect on and maybe grow a little bit. And so that's what I'm going to try and do right now as I walk us again through this story of David and Bathsheba. Bear with me. I'm going to kind of go over it again in those details. And so the story begins by setting the scene. It's spring, and it's the season when kings go out for war. But this spring is different for King David. He wasn't going to go to war this time. He was riding high. He had just reunited Israel after a major military victory. And he was looking for a little R&R. Maybe he'd let loose and break some rules, be kind of bad for a while. And so one evening, he's enjoying a stroll on his palatial rooftop and he catches a glimpse of a beautiful woman. And she's bathing, and he likes what he sees. So he stays, and he watches, and he grows desirous of her. He leers, and he creeps, and it's really already way beyond okay. But David doesn't care. He's not interested right now in being good. He, who knows, he might think he's above that. He's so powerful. And he just decides he's interested. And so he asks after this woman. He asks who she is, and the advice or the response he got should have been stop right there. Because what he heard is she's married to one of his closest generals. She's the daughter of another one of his um, close military guys. And the thing, even more than that, than adultery, is that at this time, adultery is punishable by death. And the, it would always be at this time, certainly the woman who would die from adultery because if you're pregnant, there's no denying that it was you, whereas oftentimes men could get away. And so if he had any concern for Bathsheba, or if he had any concern for these men, or any concern for being good, he would have stopped right there. And he would have well known this, like he was the king, he was an observant Jew, he knew the law. But David's feeling himself and he's feeling above it. And just a few chapters earlier, he'd actually bragged to one of his other wives, he has at this point, I think like three or four other wives, and he's bragging to her saying, you know what? I'm just going to act as evil and bad as I want because she, she was critiquing him. She was like mad that he had done something. He said, huh, watch me. Like, I'll just get worse and worse. And people are still going to love me because I'm the great king. I'm the greatest. It reminds me, well, y'all know. <laughs> but <laughs> so knowing full well what he's doing, David sends some men out to fetch Bathsheba. And the word directly translated from the Hebrew here is take. He takes Bathsheba. He takes her like an object. It's exactly the same word in Genesis when Eve um, takes fruit from the tree in the garden. It's the same word used earlier when Abram um, gives to, well, no, Sarah gives to her husband Abram their handmaid Hagar uh, in order so that she could bear them a son. This kind of taking is not. It does not connote any sort of respect or any sort of um, conversation. It's not ambiguous. It's, I'm in control. I'm in power. I'm doing this thing. I'm taking what I want. And even though the word used in the Hebrew to describe what happens next is ambiguous, the act is not. David rapes her. David is the king, and and he's a powerful man in a position of power and influence. And there was no way that Bathsheba could have said no, even if she wanted to. And so he joins the ranks of so many men before and after who use their position of power to harm someone, and specifically a woman. And that could have been the end of the story. But it's not, because one day Bathsheba realizes she's pregnant. I thought Claire was communicating to me. Sorry, Oh, OK. Because one day she realizes she's pregnant. Um, and so let's be clear, this is a terribly precarious situation for her. And at that time, according to some scholars, the way that a woman would know she was pregnant would be she was showing. Um, So it's clear, like there's no denying it. And so she's staring down this barrel, this gauntlet, that she's going to be called an adulterer and face capital punishment. Her choices are bleak. This is a really upsetting story, obviously. But um, so her choice is to send word to her husband Uriah, who at this time it's important to understand would have been judge and ju- uh, jury and prosecutioner in her adultery trial. It would be up to him to either choose to pardon her or not or and hope that he showed mercy. Or she could try to abort the child. There was That actually was an option at the time and I would have understood that completely. Or she could contact David. She could speak this incredibly inconvenient and um, incriminating and just awful, upsetting truth to the person in power and how courageous that would have been and how difficult that would have been. And so that's what she does. Instead of contacting her husband, she sends word to David and she says, I'm pregnant. That's all she says, three words, I am pregnant. And then this tangled web that I'm not gonna get so much into of increasingly desperate series of events plays out. Lies and deception, it's a power play as I read it between Uriah and David in which Bathsheba is but the pawn. It seems to me it's quite possible that Uriah knew what David did, and Uriah was trying to show to the whole kingdom to shame David, perhaps off the throne, perhaps so Uriah could be on the throne himself. I'm imagining, but it seems to make sense. And so where does David find himself? Probably where he thought he would never, ever find himself, ordering an innocent man's death. And it's here in our Bible. And what are we supposed to do with it? Because things went for this man who's been held up over the centuries as like the greatest king, God's beloved. That's how people talk about him in Sunday school and in like children's songs about the history of Israel. But things for him, he went from being a little bad to really bad to just plain evil. And the more that David connives to cover up his crime, the more he tries to appear good, the deeper hole he digs himself into and he's burying himself in his own lies. And so, aside from the horror of this story, we also are living in the same kind of world. We're living in this world where David is still remembered as beloved. We're living in a world where we frequently don't want to call people that we admire, people who are our leaders, our bosses, maybe like the people who are influential in the media, or just people we like in the media, like Aziz Ansari. Like, I don't want to admit that he could um, commit acts of evil against women, because I really appreciate him as a comedian. Um, Bill Clinton, right? Like, he was not so great towards women, obviously. We know all of these people. Um, And it's so hard to call them out and hold them accountable for the, the bad that they've done, because doing so feels unsafe. It feels impalatable. Maybe it could feel kind of unguilty, or make one feel kind of guilty if you still want to be in relationship with somebody who's done something so awful. And so what's important here is if if we have any hope of holding people accountable, holding ourselves accountable, and actually changing the world, which I think we do. I don't mean this to be a hopeless sermon. In fact, I'm trying to gesture towards what a real hope for change might look like. But I think if we're going to do that, it's going to require getting really kind of messy in our minds and seeing the complexity that this goodness and this badness can't be so separate from one another. Because bad people, just altogether evil people with no redeemable qualities, I don't think they really exist. And if they do exist, they're super uncommon. And so we're going to have to get more comfortable being in conflict and in accountability and speaking those really inconvenient truths to people that we still want in our lives. And that's not the way, for the most part, that our justice system is set up. That's not the way that our corporate systems, as far as I understand them, are set up, our church systems. None of it. They really do operate on this logic, which I understand because it's, and it's so complicated because um, it's rooted in safety, right? Like we do need to keep people safe, and so we have to have these standards. But at the same time, <laughs> these very standards that we're trying to create can make it so hard to really bring light to the issue, because people also need to feel safe enough to want to be transformed. This isn't on my paper, but I kind of think of it as like the way that a mother might. Like, um, discipline her children. Like, I think the reason that that can work is that the children know that their mother has like, their best interests at heart, and the children know that she's not going to leave them just because they did something wrong. Our justice system, just the ways that we often think, they're not like that. And the thing is, I see David engaging in just this kind of fear-based behavior where he has to manipulate and and sweep under the rug and pretend like he's good so that he won't be pushed off the throne or he won't be pushed out of society. And so he fights so hard to protect his image of being a good king, he ends up murdering an innocent person because he's afraid. And what's more, he actually turned out to be right with that gross, disgusting thing he said to his wife. People still love him, people still praise him, because we don't have the moral vocabulary to talk about these complex issues. And so what this has also meant is it just adds injustice to injustice because we want to justify the evil that's going on in the world. We just so badly need it to make sense that what we often do is blame the victims. And I know that you all probably already know a lot of this stuff. Um, But the ways that this has happened, even in this very own story, is Bathsheba often is somewhat demonized in the telling of the story, if not just like outright demonized. I remember hearing this story growing up. And it wasn't directly said to me, but I did get a sense that my Sunday school teacher, who was saying it, was like, "Hmm, like maybe Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing on the roof, like, hmm, like, uh. and or even." And there's some scholars I've read it, I've seen it. It's like just actual published uh, biblical literature. And there's plenty of preachers, there's blogs about it who don't even just kind of suggest that Bathsheba was wrong. They outright say, "Actually, she was purposely trying to solicit him." To come at her because she wanted, well, yeah, because she wanted to get close to the king and she wanted power, and that just makes me so angry because that's just we know it. It's like the same sort of logic where we blame the victim. Um, a few paragraphs down, but I'm just going to also say it now is the same logic that is behind police shootings of black men, right? Like, what what do the um, headlines always say? Well, he had a gun or he had. Uh, he was selling loose cigarettes or he, whatever. Like we want to justify these evil and scary and terrifying things in the world because if they have a justification, then they make sense and we can say that would never happen to me, that would never happen to somebody I love and uh, I'm I'm safe over here in my goodness. (sighs) Okay, Um, and so I think that's why it's important that we be clear that being good isn't gonna save us. And that's really scary, and it's like upsetting to me. I don't know how y'all feel, but it's upsetting to me. Um, but I think we really have to talk about it. Because as I said, just last week, we heard news of yet another young black man shot by police, this time in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. His name is Thurvin Blevins. And the video is widely available, and it's upsetting, and it's painful. But really, as I just alluded to, it's the reports and the way that we've talked about him after he is killed trying to say in some way he deserved this um, that I think is the even more painful, or at least just adds pain to pain. And on, on top of that, really just beyond the pain, I think it's not helping us. Again, it's just really not helping us. As good as it might feel in the moment, it's not going to restore justice or fairness. It's not going to move towards healing. It's not the transformation that I think we all need and want and really hope for, and honestly, probably still think is possible, right? Like I think that's one of the most beautiful things about us as humans is like, we still believe we can be better despite all of this. And maybe that better isn't this goodness though, or at least this like weak idea of goodness, this false idea of goodness that we are portraying it as. And so what do we need? I don't think it's this moral calculation, this sorting into bins. I don't think that's what it, we need. There's this whole uh, interesting Invisibilia episode, actually, on um, call-out culture, which is, in some ways, I think, really an interesting amplification of this idea of um, calling people bad and literally exiling them. Um, it's from April, and it gets into the complexities of that. And I don't exactly know where I am with it, but nevertheless, like, this stuff is real and live for us in society. And so how are we going to hold all of this complexity together? How can we hold all of this in our minds? I think what's really hard about that is it's going to make us feel vulnerable, and it's going to make us see the pain that we're probably causing to, actually, we're certainly causing to, and I don't want to flatten out the sorts of pain that we um, acquiesce to or you know, are just a part of a system in and that we actually um, commit. Those are different, but in some ways, seeing the connections there might point us in the direction of transformation. And so I think the first step in our healing is really just to lament how hard and how sad and how painful all of this is. What if instead of pointing our fingers and laying blame as a society, we just felt the sadness together? What if we just came to church and sang a sad song? Like, <laughs> There's something really important to that. What if we went to a prayer v- vigil? Also important. What if we could look at our world and our leaders, such as Donald Trump, could say things like, I'm sorry, I messed up. Or, I don't know. Or, hmm, maybe I should have reconsidered that. Or the Wall Street leaders who, behind this complicated housing crisis, could say, yeah, it's really, I feel bad that, in some way, I was a part of this huge, complicated system. I didn't even mean to do it. But like people lost their homes. And that's a problem. And I'm sad. And like maybe we could do something about it. Because one of the comforts of this really messy, if there's anything comforting about it, story of David and Bathsheba that we read today, I think it's this. It's at the end of what we read today says that God was really angry with David for what he had done. That's what God sends a prophet, and that prophet says to David, you messed up. And kind of amazingly, David agrees. And uh, God is angry too. God is on the side of justice. God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the marginalized. And even more specifically, the way that God sent that message to David, I think, points us further along the way, practically, this point I'm trying to make of how we're going to get there. God doesn't say, you're done with forever, David. Like, bye. I don't love you. Nah. God's like angry at this action. And Brene Brown, she's amazing, talks a lot about like the difference between shame and guilt. And if we can point at actions, that's this guilt thing that can lead towards transformation. And I think that's also what this logic of Christianity, which frankly has been, and it just makes me so upset and angry, Um, misused to be put in this shaming situation like we all know it like Christianity is just shaming people left and right but I think if we look more closely at our Bible if we learned more from the theology the the theologians the mystics all these people who have been really deep in this tradition it's about holding together the fact that we're all gonna mess up we're all sinners and yet we're still all here in community we're still all here um, together we're still all here in fact the only agents that God has to do God's work in the world is us, these imperfect agents, and that God is still the one who will work through all of our messiness and all of our brokenness and all of our fractures, and somehow it's even maybe through those places that God, I don't know, I get like a little woo-woo, but I really think it's something about, like it's through those places, through our vulnerabilities that God works in the world, and if it weren't for us as these broken vessel-like creatures, this goodness that we have, the world, I don't know if it would be possible. Like life itself is the goodness, right? Like we know that. We know the moments of joy and beauty and love that are right there in the midst of the pain. And so I think really that's the lesson for today is that this story, this Bathsheba, this terrible story is really there for us to reflect on how hard it is to be human and how complicated and messy it all is and how it's just not so clear cut and somehow or another the ways that we think normally aren't really going to cut it. And that's okay because the hope that we have is not in us knowing the difference between right and wrong. And so I'll just leave with this question, um, which might be upsetting, but for me right now, religion is most about reflecting honestly on where we are as people, where I am as a person, and all that. And so the question that I leave you with is, where are your fractured places? Where are your broken places? Where are your inconvenient truths, maybe, that have been done against you that need to be spoken? Where are your pains that need to be lamented? Where are your wrongs that need to be amended for? What are those complex realities that you know to be true and that are calling out for a response, and what are you going to do with them? Because it's precisely there in those scary places beyond the headlines and beyond the false safety of our trying to be good. Because in reality, our goodness so often the knot becomes either a tool or a cage, a tool to oppress other people, to you know, throw at other people and say, I'm better than you. Or it becomes a cage that we make ourselves tiny into so that we have almost no voice anymore, as it usually has been for me and a lot of other people, I'm afraid. Um, but this goodness isn't going to save us. And what is going to change the game, what's going to bring healing and real justice is that, um, <laughs> I don't know, this vulnerability, this honesty, this belief that actually saying something's wrong and trusting that it's wrong is gonna make a difference. And when we look there and we discover this goodness, I'm pretty sure we'll find it. It's just not gonna look like this white, shiny king or this super nice, agreeable person that we think we're supposed to be in order to be good. It's gonna look a lot different, amen.